that is the ultimate goal of any disinformation campaign right it's not that that you want to believe that what you see is true but you actually don't believe anything that you see so it's like filling the ecosystem with so much noise that can, you believe nothing and i think that is where authoritarian regimes actually start propping up because now people believe no one hello this is the great battlefield podcast i'm nathaniel g perlman a great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side this show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight for this episode i spoke with ashish jamin director of technology operations at microsoft ashish is interested in the intersection of technology and civic life. He's currently working on a book about deep fakes and democracy. Ashish has spent a decade and a half at Microsoft working as an architect evangelist, working on their political campaign technology initiatives and on initiatives in defense of our democracy. Recently, he's helped launch AI and cybersecurity solutions to improve security resilience and combat disinformation. Before Microsoft, Ashish had leadership roles at several startups, including the early days of Mine, NGP Software, where he led technology for about two and a half years. Ashish and I had a good conversation about his background and career path, his current work, and what he's learned along the way. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Ashish Jamin of Microsoft. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Ashish. Hey, Nathaniel. How are you? I'm good. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm Ashish Jamin. I work uh, with Microsoft for the last 15 years, had various roles. Right now, I'm working in, in a department called Customer Security and Trust, focusing on defending democracy program where I bring meaningful technology solutions and as well as policy discussions to combat disinformation, to provide uh, security solutions to campaigns, political entities, human rights organizations. Prior to that, I was running a Microsoft startup uh, business in public sector. I joined Microsoft as an ISV architect evangelist. What that meant was I was a technologist who would help partners and customers to bring their solutions, uh, build them on Microsoft platform and go to market. And most interesting fact, before joining Microsoft, I was with Nathaniel and I was helping him to build technology at NGP uh, software. You were the first real professional programmer I hired uh, back in about 2003 and worked with me almost two and a half years. 
those were really interesting time i was actually coming out of uh, another startup that got acquired and i felt actually very much at home working at ngp because you know it felt like hey i there's an opportunity to create an impact build something from scratch you already had a product right it's not like building something from scratch scratch but taking it to the web and making it uh, multi tenant at that point we didn't even call it multi tenant i don't know if you remember it was very early in developing web based software and and a lot of the tools and techniques that were available then are have been superseded many times just to go back even further where did you grow up what kind of education did you get i'm from india originally i was born and raised near delhi 150 kilometers south of delhi a state called rajasthan which is actually the biggest state in india and i did my high school and then ended up in an engineering college so in india you know growing up typically when i was growing up there were only two options for career realistically every parent would want their kid either to be an engineer or a doctor ended up becoming an engineer so i uh, i did my electrical engineering uh, from uh, it's what's called national institute of technologies now used to be regional engineering colleges 17 of them across india public schools which actually were, were pretty good well funded uh, so i ended up doing my engineering electrical engineering and then pursued my masters in in uh, management essentially majored in finance so that's my my educational background well how did you end up in the us so after my management you know i got placed into tata infotech in india we call them campus interviews where companies would come into your campus and recruit you essentially when your final years so i ended up uh, joining tata infotech as a subject matter expert because my background was engineering plus finance but during that time folks especially in 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 technology uh, were ending up in the us right the internet boom was just starting back in the day through tata infotech which is actually the biggest technical consulting company in in the world now called tata consulting services most of my colleagues ended up in the us and i was one of them on an h1b visa two years working for tata infotech it was a company in uh, southern maryland so i ended up uh, there trying to help them build a dispatch solution uh, where you know you a customer would call this company on the phone and and build that dispatch solution where the company would actually service them with the orders uh, so i ended up doing that for two years and then how did you land at lexign yeah so everyone actually was was thinking about doing startups because the the whole idea at that time was there was a lot of funding around right as i'm sure nathaniel you remember those days where even a simple idea in you know often e-commerce or whatever would get a lot of money out and the bubble was forming and when everyone was doing uh, tech startups i also ended up in a startup <laughs> called lexine we built a very interesting product at that point um, i don't know if if your audience would remember a tool in microsoft called uh, infopath it was a form space tool where people can actually create any application uh, move from paper to to online forms so we were building a tool similar to what microsoft info infopath was for three years we raised good money and then the bubble crashed and we lost a good money and a lot of people as well we ended up selling or or exiting out where a bank out of salt lake city actually had this great idea of moving all their uh, financial documents on the web 
using our technology. And then I think it was the NGP yes. period of your life. Yeah. At the time, we had a client server product, you know, hosted locally on computers, and we were working on the web-based system. And we were late to that in maybe the world of commerce, but very early to that in the world of politics. Yes. For people who now know NGP Van, which is uh, over 300 people, it, it would be pretty curious to go back and look at that somewhat ragtag band of five or six people that we were right then. Yeah. In, in fact, uh, whenever I, I go on uh, towards DC using Connecticut Avenue, I always point whoever is with me, the town home there where we actually were building technology. Yeah. We were on Connecticut Avenue in a house next to a school for infants and we had a deck on the back and we kind of we were kind of as a sort of a family-like atmosphere it was super fun it was we, we were using uh, i think there was kitchen and then you ended up putting a couple of walls to make some offices as well uh, I, I remember one day i came back and and suddenly i see a wall and, and you said hey i actually put it together over the weekend because i thought we'll require some offices that was really interesting we worked there till we had maybe 15 people and we had an active product on the web and a lot of people using it did you learn anything at ngp or did you mostly just teach us things oh no 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 i (laughs) i i i I learned a lot right and 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 one of the things i learned was the product that that you had client server and then taking it to the web that was uh, yes, I've done that before, but, you know, kind of uh, responsible for that it was uh, a good learning, you know, how to manage uh, both up, right, <laughs> like like expectations from you and Lou and others, but also making sure that the team can execute and deliver. So that was a great learning. In fact, you know, um, uh, I think one of the great learnings I've had is not just technology, but how to manage people, how to uh, be a uh, a better manager actually was was my great learning there as well along with so innovative things we did on technology itself as you said you know even though we may have been late on the e-commerce side but in politics that was like very novel we had the like the dean campaign and and you know presidential campaigns and senate campaigns and gubernatorial campaigns running on this very early almost beta software uh, at the time Yes, uh, especially the the FEC filing time period was was great because you know that that was like it was always at the last moment and people were all rushing. It was a fire drill all the time. But but that was a great learning as well in terms of hey how we can manage it and not make it a fire drill every other month. I remember you to be a politically interested person, maybe Indian politics more so than U.S. politics, but it wasn't that far off from domain interest for you as well as technological interest. No, you are absolutely right, right? Again, growing up in India, and this is what like I, I always uh, tell people is most of the people who grow up in India are very political aware. And the reason is because, you know, politics influences their daily lives way more than any other developed uh, democracy, right? You know, you have to make sure that you elect the right local leaders who can change from local to to national to state. Plus, uh, my family 
a bit more politically aware than average indian so that so that was another thing and then growing up uh, in in college as well we have uh, in india used to when i was growing up i don't know where where it is right now but in, even in in colleges and universities there would be elections to select your student body so i was involved there as well so but it was genuinely a startup experience in the in all of the learning that was going on among all of us about how to make a company out of whole cloth it it was it was fantastic and exactly and that's what i i learned as when you were asking what did i learn i i think that was one of the great learnings is like how can you as you say right building the airplane as as you're flying it kind of environment which is tremendous learning for for not only for me but you know everyone at that time when we were just trying to put things together as well as servicing customers and building something innovative or break things that was that was immense learning when you decided to leave and go to microsoft it was quite a blow to us it was like you know because in a certain way you were like the father figure to the technical team but that was a really significant opportunity for you right what was it that you saw in the microsoft job and how did that start out for you it was a decision that was hard for me as well uh, but i do feel proud that 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 you say that those words because i when i went to uh, the ngp offices uh, lately i think a couple of years back i still saw my name on the board which actually was very very uh, exciting and 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 for me you know the opportunity came along uh, from microsoft to drive technology in a partner ecosystem isvs and i was part of like you know lexign which was a startup and then then yeah, then ngp i was learning a lot from a from a perspective of building technology but microsoft's opportunity was more customer facing going out and 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 enabling others to build technology was i thought something uh, a great skill to have uh, as i progressed into my career so that was actually one of the decisions i had hard decisions that i made is like hey what i may learn is also customer facing role in enabling others to build technology there must have been a fairly large contrast between a bunch of kids working in a house and a one of the world's premier corporations what was surprising to you this is my fourth job actually fourth company that i'm working with so i haven't changed jobs a lot but even microsoft you know uh, small teams sometimes behave like a startup but you know it's a different culture there's a different kind of energy where we were in startup where we were building something breaking things and rapidly learning from it risk taking is not as much in big corporations as we we had right the other thing is people do feel uh, you know sometimes uh, a bit more stable in big organizations but as i went in right the main difference was a little bit of risk awareness <laughs> you know like people typically don't want to take risk they and then processes and things that you have to follow to get things done which was different you ended up in a part of microsoft that had to do with civic tech that had to do with defending democracy later how did how did that become the path for you my learnings from ngp helped me to create that path so So the story is uh, after doing that ISV architect role for 3 plus years I ended up 
creating this this small group in Microsoft in 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 DC public sector to help startups to do what I was doing for a big ISVs. Did it as a stretch assignment, but ended up actually getting some funding and the team to do it full time. At that point, Microsoft VP Daniel Lewin was running the global startup program. Whenever he would actually come to DC, you know, I'd show him our progress in the public sector startup world, but also uh, navigate him into the ecosystem of public sector startup business. When Daniel took a role of civic tech in 2014, he he asked me to to do what I was doing for startups for civic tech organizations. So it was, you know, my my background at NGP, which was a bit you know learning about political software and politics, with my background in startups, I think encouraged Daniel to ask me to do that uh, civic tech because he was running the global civic tech business and he thought it, there was a great opportunity for Microsoft to build something novel in the civic tech, especially focused on campaign security and campaign tech business. And that's what he asked me to do. So give me an example of some of the work you did within that purview. So I was actually away from how that ecosystem has evolved. So the first thing we ended up doing is uh, did a lot of listening. In fact, I met you, I met Stu, trying to figure out what how the technology ecosystem has evolved in the campaign side of the business. Now, being Microsoft, we worked on both sides, so the progressives and Republicans as well. So ended up learning from from both that there was a a lack of newer, novel uh, technology, not not from a perspective of what you were doing for for enabling campaigns, but the data pipeline, right, more or less, because there was so much data was, was being created. So we ended up building a technology on our platform to enable the ecosystem to not only bring all the data together, but to manage, analyze, standardize it, and then build innovation on top of it. Did anyone use that? I don't remember on our side that coming into play much. We did a couple of pilots with both sides. Uh, There was uh, some initial interest uh, that we actually worked with uh, with John, GPVAN CTO on it, Uh, worked with Craig as well to shape what we were thinking, and then ended up doing a tech transfer of it uh, to both NGPVN as well as uh, one other vendor on the right because we wanted we, we wanted to make sure that we actually are not perceived as as biased on one side or another. So Daniel would, would, would say that, hey, you have two arms, right? One a, a right and a left. So I had a team member who would actually just focus on progressives. I had a team member who would only focus on, on uh on the Republican side, uh, but whatever tools and technology we build, we offer it to both, and then whoever takes it, you know, it, it was completely their decision. What else happened? What else were you working on in that role? So building technology was one. Uh, helping the ecosystem understand the use of technology was another, uh, because there was a lot of innovation going on on the cloud as well as on the data side and at Microsoft and in the industry. So uh, we would do what we call architecture design sessions, proof of concepts to help the ecosystem understand the value of technology and how they can leverage technology to improve their businesses and eventually help their customers, which were political campaigns, to be more efficient and, and effective. So what was Microsoft's purpose in getting into that area? Does that mean they want the campaign world to use their cloud? Does that mean that they wanted influence? Do they just see it as business? What, what was the thinking 
would you say? So the thinking was was pretty simple. One is building relationship capital with the enterprises, political enterprises. The other is we are a platform company at the end of the day, right? And winning some critical, not only relationship, but uh, technology innovations on cloud. As, as you would remember, we were late in the cloud game, essentially, as Microsoft, right? So uh, Amazon was started you know, in 2004, I think, 2004, 2006. Azure went GA in 2010. So we a couple of years late. So we a- ended up, thinking about, hey, strategically, where in the market we should actually drive innovation on Azure. And that was another uh, another way how we looked at this ecosystem. So were you having fun? Were you enjoying this job? So, so we actually have recently, in uh, three years back, uh, did a pivot on our business. So two things. We One has became more globally focused as well. So previously our business, well, campaign tech or civic tech organization was very focused in the U.S., but after 2016 elections, we did a pivot and said, all right, you know, we, we have proved a build a model. Let's actually take it global. And then the other thing we did is uh, because of what we saw in 2016, we kind of focused on cybersecurity as well and see if uh, the disruptions, uh, again, rebranding ourselves or defending democracy rather than CTS, campaign tech and services, with a global mission to help improve cybersecurity resilience of entities whose main mission is is advancement of democracy. So that means political campaigns, electoral bodies, civic society groups, help them use technology, especially cybersecurity technologies, to be more cybersecurity resilience from bad actors, be it nation state or domestic. How did that go? Well, it's it's, it's going pretty well. Uh, We announced uh, Microsoft Account Guard in 31 democracies, what is Account Guard? Yeah, so Microsoft Account Guard is is a service where we provide notification, proactive nation state notifications. What I mean by nation state is if we see any activity of a nation state nefarious actor, either direct or their surrogate actors on that customer's uh, infrastructure, we'll proactively notify them as well as we'll provide them prescriptive guidance to uh, mitigate that threat. This was very focused, especially on uh, political entities, customers who are in either uh, uh, running campaigns or running elections, because what we've seen is these are high-risk customers, typically a, a big target of nation-state actors. These customers would be running what sort of Microsoft tools that that would be potentially vulnerable. Or is it beyond Microsoft tools? No, so mostly uh, our cloud platform, uh, both Azure as well as uh, Productivity Suite, which is Office 365. So what we do as, as a business, right, we have this threat intelligence team that ma- that monitors nation state actors. And if you see any of that activity or, in, or on our infrastructure, if you are part of Microsoft Account Guard, then we can actually point it back to saying, hey, hey, this activity is actually focused on this particular customer. And then we take additional steps to make sure that customer actually is aware of that activity, but also put right kind of controls to mitigate that threat. We recently had this gigantic hack of the U.S. government and businesses, the solar winds related hack. I know that Microsoft was part of responding to that. Did that touch on your world at all? 
it did touch Microsoft. It did touch a couple of Microsoft teams. Uh, and I think uh, we have uh, officially responded in terms of what our position is and how we have responded to it. Brad Smith, who is our president, actually went on uh, uh, intelligence committee briefing last week to, to talk in detail about that. Your current title is something like Director of Technology Operations. Yeah. What does that mean? Where do you sit in the hierarchy with a title like that? My mission is to bring innovative technologies to market. Microsoft actually gives me enough flexibility to think and build something interesting. So Account Guard is something that we actually envisioned and architected and, and put together in 2018. Yesterday, we, we had a very big announcement around that. So we, th that is in market for since 2018. Lately, what I have been working on is disinformation defense. So what can we do as a big software platform company to help the ecosystem to mitigate the risk of disinformation. So I don't know where in the hierarchy it would fit, but Microsoft gives me in my role enough flexibility to think about innovative solutions and, 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 and build them. I read an article that you wrote, which made a parallel between cybersecurity and its attack on computers and systems and misinformation and more of its attack on our brains, on individuals. Tell me about what you're thinking there. Disinformation, even though it has been around propaganda and, and all that forever, right? But the tools and the scale that we have right now, it is really becoming a tool to disrupt. Now with the scale and, and the actors who are motivated both to disrupt as well as financial motivations are using the tools to spread disinformation and, and achieve their motives. In cybersecurity, you know, we, we saw this for the last three decades or so, right? came from the same kind of uh, approach where, you know, you'll have people sitting in the basement trying to disrupt someone. Now it has become, like in the last 10 years, it become a, a very sophisticated operation by bad actors to disrupt computer system networks and the like. If you look into, into the timeline, I think we are around the same time as in cybersecurity, we were around 20 years back, right? Where the industry came together and said, all right, you know, this is really will impact the lives of people, but our systems as well, our businesses. In fact, Microsoft, Bill Gates wrote a memo, I think early 2000s, about trustworthy computing, where we said, you know, security development lifecycle is the basic frame. It is first, the first thing that we think about before building anything is security, how secure it is. I think we are in the same place with this information is we provide tools to create information. We should start thinking about how that tool can be used to spread this information. So, so my thinking there is if we can learn from cybersecurity domains, 30 years of experience and how they came together, build this whole notion of defense in depth, right? Where you, you know, one control would fail. Can you have multiple control? If we start thinking from that lens and treat disinformation from that lens, I think we can get somewhere. And that's where I was trying to make a, a comparison be between uh, things that cybersecurity domain does and can we learn from it and mitigate the threat of disinformation. Have we gotten good at cybersecurity over those 30 years? Because it, it does feel like it's a losing battle sometimes. Yes, we have. Right? And, and I'll tell you some couple examples. One is, just from a user awareness perspective, right? Consumers 
of systems are now becoming a bit more aware of what the cybersecurity vulnerabilities are. They know the term for sure, right? They also know what phishing is and not to click on email. So, so there is a consumer literacy piece that has improved a lot. The other thing is the platforms, big platforms like Microsoft or every other like Google and Amazon and others are investing a lot in fighting uh, very actively about this. So, you know, I'll give you an example. We get more than 80 billion signals on our platform, which are kind of cybersecurity signals, essentially. So if, if yes, there will be out of that, if, if let's say 0.01% passes through, that's still a big number. Those signals are like alerts that something might be wrong? Well, the signals is like someone is trying to hack into the system. Someone actually has sent a phishing email. You know, someone has clicked on the phishing email, those kind of signals, right? So, and this is just us. I'm sure Google is doing something similar. Amazon does something similar and, and others as well. So when you say it is getting worse, I think we are improving a lot. We actually have done a lot on cybersecurity, but it's a constant uh, cat and mouse game, right? You know, as we say, right, we have to win every time. They just have to win once or twice. And sometimes they win, but but we keep on improving. Uh, and that's what, what, what I'm trying to get to is, uh, I think we have done pretty good on cybersecurity, both from a consumer awareness perspective, but also building the tools to defend and protect and respond to cybersecurity incidents. We should take the same kind of learning and, and, and build something interesting with collaboration across the industry to mitigate disinformation threat with the same thing. Like, can we track disinformation? Can we monitor disinformation? Can we analyze it? Can we protect, defend, and respond to it quickly? and make consumers aware that all information they, they consume is not the right information. So this notion of defense in depth, how does that work in the area of disinformation? For any countermeasure, especially on disinformation, you have to think of two things. Can you reduce the belief of consumers into that disinformation? And can you reduce the exposure of that disinformation? So when you say reduce the belief, if you think about the defense in depth, the first thing that when I consume an information, can I try to put a label or context, additional context around that information, right? So that's like a first step of, we'll say, let's actually try to reduce. Uh, like uh, Twitter putting a note on Trump's tweets about the election. Well, yeah, labeling Twitter actually done a pretty good job on, on labeling. In fact, recently they also uh, put another control where if you, try to retweet something, they would prompt you, have you read this article first, right? There's like one little step uh, makes the person think, you know, even though most of people would say, yes, I've read it without reading it, but at least there is a step. So that those are like little controls as you try to parse that in disinformation and try to put control. So, so labeling is good. Providing additional context is good. Then the other thing, you know, go to the next part. Can you actually reduce the exposure? So if you identify something as disinformation, can you demonetize it? Can you derank it? Uh, or can you actually not allow people to share it as much? So limit dissemination of it. And in some cases, you know, if it's violence and sexually explicit or whatever, you know, you remove the content as well. So, so kind of putting the controls in series, not just the, hey, one control would work, take care of it, right? But, but defense in depth is every step as the information is created till it's, it's consumed in the pipeline of in information dissemination, can you put right controls? 
How do you identify something as disinformation? There's obviously a whole spectrum and it sounds like probably computers having to make a lot of these decisions if you're talking about billions of pieces of information. How does that happen? Because of the, the speed and scale the information is created, humans cannot catch up, right? It's not scalable, you know, so you have to rely on technology a lot. But there must be a human intervention, maybe at the last mile, right? And, and we can talk about that. But how do you define this information is a very important topic, right? You know, there's a lot of research. At the end of the day, disinformation could be qualified as low authority content. Now, how do you define what is a low authority, right? You start thinking about not just the intent, because intent is hard to actually contextualize in some cases, right? If I put something, you know, my intention, there's just so many things. There's context to it. There is cultural aspects to information. There's, there's so many other things. So it's very hard to define intent. So then you start thinking about, okay, uh, if I can't figure out exact intent of this information, and sometimes it's easy, so but but in, in, in most of the time it is not, then you go to the next level and saying, okay, can I look at the, the behavior of the person or the, or the entity who's actually disseminating it, right? And that's where you start thinking about or, or, or listing, you know, what, what does authoritative content means versus non-authoritative. So it's a very complex issue. I may not have, have the answers, but, but to your point, uh, it is very, very complex. So I go back to my previous notion because it's complex. It has to be a multimodal and a multi-stakeholder kind of solution and thinking around this issue area. So let's talk about this in the context of a political campaign maybe even a political campaign for president of the United States. We know already that we've had that misinformation, disinformation had a, well, they've always had a role kind of, even in the 19th century, newspapers were printing lies about the different sides. But it's very different when you have external states, bots at scale spreading around the internet. There's the potential that you've also written about to alter a campaign through a deep fake of someone having said something or done something that isn't true, that's completely manufactured, but looks wholly realistic. What are you thinking about in the possibilities and consequences in that area? So, so interestingly, yesterday, FBI did put out a warning saying that, that nation states uh, are actually using deep fakes to disrupt uh, harmony and, and, and bring social divisions and polarizations. So it is real. Some of the hypotheticals are, as, as you said, you know, where you, know, you can actually create a, a very realistic deep fake of a political op opponent and disrupt their campaign. The challenge with, especially in the elections, is there is a hard deadline when the voting is, right? And and their timing is, is very crucial. So if you get a deep fake like a day or two days before, even though the candidate can debunk it, there may not be enough time to recover from it, right? And, and you know, you may lose those elections. So it is real. One thing that I also am a strong believer on is Whenever a new innovation comes out, right, typically the leaders of, of adoption of that innovation are two sets of people. One is research academia, you know, some interesting folks who actually want to use the technology for doing good. And these are like small set. 
And then you have nefarious actors who would actually use that technology to disrupt and, and, and gain, right? We saw it with, with email, like everything was spam and, and all that. Now we have, we have come to a point where tools are strong enough to, to, to separate spam. We still get some. But as technology evolves, right, as people become more and more aware, the fulcrum shifts essentially, you know, more and more people become aware, more people use it for right purposes. And I think synthetic media would also go through that life cycle of, of innovation. But at this point, especially deep fakes, if you think about what can we do from politics is one, but, you know, there are, in fact, right now, most of the deep fakes actually are to uh, in revenge pornography, actually, you know, harming uh, reputations and 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 other things of women, and uh, so so there is a real cause of concern here, right? Using defects in, in in bad things. As you start thinking about it, what can we do as an industry? But what can we do as a as as a society? And what can we do as consumers? Is something that we have to think about, right? And it goes into disinformation as well. Can we be more literate about that all the information that we consume is not real. That's one. Can we challenge uh, the information <laughs> and discern it in the right way? Do we have tools to actually understand at the same scale and speed the information gets to us? So that's on the consumer side. From a policymaker side, it's very important to understand the the goods and bads of of any technology innovation. So you you know it's very easy to say, hey, let's just ban all the deep fakes, right? But it's hard because not only it, it challenges the, the free society aspects of speech and expression, but also the technology, actually synthetic media technology provides a, a lot of positive use cases. And then the technology side, you know, someone like Microsoft and Google and others what, or Facebook, what they can do is um, start putting the right kind of interventions as I talked about this defense in depth kind of strategies, labeling, providing more context, uh, in some cases, even removing the content, uh, be more transparent about how how they are doing it. It doesn't all make me feel very comfortable that we have it under control. How hard is it right now to put together a deep fake? If I want to make it look like you, you know, robbed a bank and a, and there's a video of you doing it, how hard would it be for me to put that together if I found the right tools? You find the right tools and I'll say under $10,000, you can actually make it happen. <laughs> right? and, and the reason I say so is there are tools right now which actually uh, do it even cheaper, like they're open source tools. There are some websites actually where you can upload a video and, and, and get a deep fake. But the sophistication is of what we are talking about is not yet there. They're not as deep. They're not as deep. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the interesting one, which actually bubbled last week, was the Tom Cruise one. I don't know if you if you saw that. I did not. There's a, a deep fake of Tom Cruise playing golf. The creator actually published on exactly what they did to, to make it happen. And it was more for uh, raising awareness of this issue. But it does require a, a bit of sophistication to get that level of deep fakes. But to your point, you know, Audio defects are more concerning to me right now, right? If you think about it, because the way the no notion of just hearing someone say something, especially audio defects, you're saying audio defects. Yeah. 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 That sounds pretty easy to do. That, that, yeah, exactly. So I think that has a level of concern 
Uh, even though we talk a lot about video defects, uh, but that still requires some level of sophistication to build. Audio defects actually are cheaper and can have similar kind of disrupting effects. If we're entering what seems to me a pretty unfortunate world of being able to manufacture reality increasingly, how do we deal with that when we have presidents like Trump who have no compunction about lying and so might both be willing to commission a deep fake to help them or claim that something that they did wasn't true by using that oh this was a deep fake just like he would say you know this is fake news it seems like right up the alley of that kind of actor which we have many in the world unfortunately yeah in fact that is one of the big concerns is having a real incident be termed as as deep fake in in the industry, there's this term called liar's dividend, essentially, liar's dividend, which is a, exactly what you said, is like someone claiming a truthful incident as a fake incident. To your point, it is becoming very challenging when you can manufacture reality and eventually when we end up not trusting anything that we see or we hear. That's like a real societal decay to me, right? Where if you don't trust anything, Actually, if you think about it, that is the ultimate goal of any disinformation campaign, right? It's not that that you want to believe that what you see is true, but you actually don't believe anything that you see. So it's like filling the ecosystem with so much noise that you believe nothing. And I think that is where authoritarian regimes actually start propping up because now people believe no one. So there's one person that eventually people start believing and whatever comes out and that's where authoritarianism shapes up. Well, I feel like we are unfortunately fairly far down that road, even in the United States right now. Like there are vast numbers of people who are highly distrusting of a lot of information. Often they're distrustful of generally good information maybe not even distrustful enough of bad information, but it goes both ways. We are not immune to this. We are in the mid middle of this. It's not deep fakes yet, generally, but it is lies, untruths, and many variants of misinformation and disinformation that are out there all over the place, right? Yes, there is, and it's it's really concerning. In fact, you know, one of the things that we, we saw in, in the U.S. 2020 was not much use of defects and and why would you even spend like tens of thousands of dollars when you can get the the successful campaign with little miscontextualizing images right or spreading falsehood is is really easy and cheap in fact there was a study i don't know if you you've seen it twitter actually did a study a couple of years back where they said a false tweet actually spread six times more than a, than a truthful uh, information. <laughs> what, what advice would you give to political professionals, to campaign managers, to politicians, to people, to political communicators about how to operate better in this world of too much disinformation and misinformation? It's a, it's a very deep and tough question, but but I'll, I'll say a couple of things, right? One is be prepared, like be prepared because there will be disinformation about your campaign and, and your candidate. So be prepared uh, with the right responses, essentially. Uh, the other thing is, uh, which I and we are thinking about this and I, you know, is like, could there be some kind of 
a code of conduct or a pledge, you know, where folks who are running for office and their campaigns can adhere to and say, yes, we will not actively pursue this misinformation based campaigning. Right. So that's one way to think about it is like, hey, can can we get together? In fact, uh, President Biden, I think it was uh, Alliance of Democracies uh, pledge a couple of years back. But, you know, it can come from the top, right? Saying, hey, you know, this is how we we conduct ourselves when we do when we do these kind of campaigns. So also be proactively committing to not not be part of the problem. And the third thing is do your best to actually make your voters aware of this infodemic or, or this systematic disinformation and campaigns as well. So that's a responsibility for everyone, but especially more for campaigns as they are running for office. They are the role models that everyone listens to and hears. They can also start spreading awareness about this. So in your role, what are your plans going forward the next bunch of years? What would you like to be able to make happen? I'm actively thinking about, you know, and, and that was the, the article you mentioned, cybersecurity, uh, disinformation is a cybersecurity threat. I want to actively pursue that and make something happen, not just from a technology solution perspective, but align consumer awareness, media literacy, policy and regulations along with this technology solution. Because if we start treating disinformation as a cybersecurity threat, we can go at least somewhere towards a solution. So what I would want to do actually is pursue that opportunity for the next couple of years and, and make a really impactful, meaningful, uh, multimodal solution that involves policy, regulations, uh, as well as technology. Ashish, when you are working on this, there's got to be other folks in other big companies, in academia, in nonprofit groups, who else is working on this problem that you would like to cite as being useful or that, that I should know about? Yeah, so uh, this nonprofit called Witness, uh, Sam Gregory is, is very active. Adobe is doing very interesting work here. Facebook, Twitter, and Google as well. So one thing that I can share is what I've realized in the last two years in this ecosystem of, of you know combating disinformation is the same group of people essentially that I encountered, like Claire Waddle from the first draft news, uh, partnership on AI, the policy people in Google that we interact with, as well as some technologists. Yeah, and 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 there is some work at DARPA as well around this. So it's always nice to catch up to you, even after all these years. Is there a question that I didn't ask that I should have? I just want to. To thank you again for, for this opportunity. I always enjoy talking to you. We, you know, uh, we've, we've tried to grab coffee now and then, right? you, <laughs> you know, since I left NGP 15 years back. One thing that I can call out is like, hey, let's let's collaborate more as an industry, as a civil society to, to really think hard about this complex problem of disinformation. I do have a, a a manuscript of a book around deepfakes, which actually should be out in next uh, late summer, early fall. Uh, so, so I'll talk a bit more in the book about you know the the positive use cases of synthetic media. So it's not all doom and gloom. There's some real innovations around synthetic media that I want to call as well. I look forward to seeing the book. I 
appreciate the chance to talk to you. Uh, anything else you want to say? Well, I'm, again, thank you very much for the opportunity, and it's always great to catch up with you. That was Ashish Jamin. Ashish is at Microsoft.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.